Well, hello. Welcome to the Church Planting Podcast. My name is Clint Clifton. This podcast is intended to help church planters and sending churches aspiring to make more disciples through church planting. Today we're going to listen in on a conversation between D.A. Horton and Colby Garman on the subject of contextualization. This was recorded a few weeks ago when D.A. visited the D.C. area to meet uh, some of our planters and speak in our church. Uh, D.A., among other things, he wears a lot of hats, but he's the author of two very useful and accessible books, one titled DNA, Foundations of the Faith, and the other titled simply Gospel. And this is part two in a three-part series. So here it is. Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to take some time today and talk a little bit about contextualization. And maybe there's somebody listening to the podcast today who uh, they would just say, I don't even know what contextualization is. Give them an introduction. Um, when we look at contextualization, primarily what we're talking about is how do we as believers communicate the eternal truths of God to people who don't know God, know of him, or let alone have any type of uh, history with the gospel. And so contextualization is basically taking the message of God through the language of people and communicating it to them in a way they can understand. There's three approaches, and when we do this, um, oversimplified, the first is when you're dealing with culture um, and you, you're trying to communicate the truth of Scripture, you can either A, isolate yourself from culture, like a good example like be Amish, where they just set up their own camp, do their own thing. Well, not because of reality show Amish in the city and Amish mafia. It's a little different. But a few years ago, you know, we when we thought Amish, we thought, you know, churning butter and stuff like that. They isolate themselves from the context uh, that they are uh, the overall larger part of the state or the city that they're on the outskirts of. Then you have uh, full-blown accommodation where you go into an environment, you lose your distinction as who you once were, and there is no distinctive about how you live your life, what you say, compared to the people that you were once trying to reach. You look like them, talk like them, you've forsaken your mission. But then contextualization is neither isolation or accommodation. It's basically saying, how can I look at the culture, assess the culture, learn the language of the culture, and then what I know to be true from the scriptures, how can I filter that through a biblical perspective and then give them God's truth in a way that their cultural expressions would create a platform for the way that the language could be communicated. It's like making coffee. You have coffee and you put hot water, the hot water goes through it, but then it goes through a filter so that we don't have to chew the coffee. We drink the coffee because it's the, it's the, uh, the byproduct of that hot water, uh, hitting the coffee beans that have been grinded. that go through the filter. The filter keeps the grinds where it is. That's exactly what contextualization is like a pot of coffee is that the byproduct we have is what God's word says through the lens of the culture, but we don't, keep the the grinds of the culture we don't cuss we don't sleep around we don't smoke weed to 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 meet a weed head we like no we utilize the reality of uh, of what god has given us in the scriptures and in the means of of culture and communicate it to them clearly so they can hear the the clear presentation of the gospel so would you say there's a, a biblical basis for doing this sort of thing and, and thinking along these lines? Yeah, I mean, let's just take the cue from uh, the book of Acts. We look in uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, at that point in time, arguably, the church was 100% Jewish uh, on the day of Pentecost. You have Jews from around the world, the then-known world, uh, that had traveled to Jerusalem. And uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon the individuals to speak in uh, known languages that were unknown to them, the people heard them in their own languages declaring the blessings of God. And so when Peter preached, 
he used an analogy and illustrations that pulled from Joel's prophecy that the Jewish context knew about. Fast forward, you see even some racial tensions uh, in, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 6, when they had to install deacons. By this time, arguably, conservative scholars say the church had 20,000 members. So, I mean, it was just growing in affluency. And um, they finally said, hey, we need a few guys to help. <laughs> you know, there's 20,000. It's getting a little too much now. And so um, the biggest issue was, yo, the Hellenized Jews felt like yeah, there was some contention. I mean, they're still full-blooded Jews, but they had been Hellenized because they've been living on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So they had to contextualize the means of communication and ministry to a Christian audience that was Jewish ethnically that was leaving the culture of the Old Covenant and now being recipients of the New Covenant. But then you fast forward to Acts 10, and what you see in that environment is uh, it's it's not Samaria, it's not Jerusalem or Judea. This is uh, an Italian, Cornelius, that, you know, he's a fearer of God, as the scriptures proclaim. But God shows Peter, you know, rise, kill and eat three times. And Peter's like, no, he's thinking from a Jewish only mentality, because that's all the church is at this point, outside of a few half breeds that are half Jewish, half Gentile, nobody fully Gentile yet. And he communicates the message of the gospel as God leads him to speak to Cornelius in a different way, obviously. And then through that, the Lord brings him uh, to salvation. His family's baptized. But then you fast forward yet again to Paul's travels to a completely uh, Gentile audience. And you see him in the Areopagus in chapter 17. And he's looking through the city of Athens and he says, ah, you guys are very religious. And he pulls from cultural uh, phenomena and, and different uh, gods and says there's even a tomb to an, or a, a, an idol to an unknown god and man he leveraged that perfectly and he proclaimed the gospel to them and then even as you see in, in various uh, you know writings um, like you see where he brought Timothy along uh, when he went back to Lystra and Derby and he had Timothy circumcised why did he have Timothy circumcised well because people knew he was Jewish and if he wasn't circumcised the Jewish population that Paul was called to reach would have ostracized Timothy because he wasn't circumcised but he didn't mandate that Titus get circumcised because Titus was fully Gentile so there's a contextualization right there that uh, even if he was in a Jewish audience with Paul the Jews would have no offense with Titus because he's a Gentile he doesn't need to get circumcised but if, he, if Timothy was how, could, how we know your father's a Greek are you circumcised okay you are okay now we can have this conversation so that's where even Paul and himself would say man you know I want it to be all things to all people that I might reach some to those who were under the law I, I put myself under the yoke of the burden of law it wasn't for my salvation it was to leverage that as a relationship so that I can share the gospel for those that were free from that they wanted to make me pork chops I'd eat pork chops with them because there's no sin in that as long as I'm not you know uh, falling into gluttony or idolizing and so you have all those elements that we have to look at and say how does that translate to today and that's where we have to look at the dynamics of our relationships. We have to look at the dynamics of what God has called us to do and gospel, uh, you know, pushing back lostness. And then how do we actually do that? What does that look like? And it takes time to assess and work through a biblical framework. Here's the cues that we catch from Christ. Here's the cues that we see in Paul. Here's the cues from the writing of uh, John, the writing of Peter, the writing of James. Okay, Lord, help me to build a framework so that now I can go forward in communicating your truth in a way that people can understand and so in, in my demographic when we planted and even my first pastorate before the church plant you know uh, people were 63 to 96 uh, years old completely caucasian there was not a speck of color outside of the the lights on the gels you know on the transparencies <laughs> and so so with that i mean i was the first pastor of color that's what they called me and um i'm 27 i literally got the literal phone call on my 27th birthday to be the pastor of this church that was in existence for 97 years. So my first lesson on missiology was not, yo, we're going to reach dope dealers and man, we're going to, this is how you shoot a nine millimeter. It wasn't nothing like that. 
I love doo-wop. That's my favorite kind of music, doo-wop, from the uh, mid-50s to the early 60s. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I said, for our first WMU meeting, when they let me talk at the end, I didn't even know what that meant. Now I do. Um, they gave me the floor to talk for 15 minutes about missions. And I said, missions is not just across the sea, it's across the street. And they were like, huh. Because they're coming from a paradigm where we give our cooperative money and it goes in Lottie Moon to overseas and we pray for the people and the pictures. Or we give to Annie Armstrong and it goes to North American Missions and we pray for the pictures on the thing. I get that. And I said, and I'm with that 110%. But I think that there's a mission field right outside our front door. And they just didn't get it. And I said, in 1957, the, the, in this week, Why Do Fools Fall in Love by Frankie Lyman was at the top of the charts. When smoke gets in your eyes by the platters is number two. Now they're smiling. Now I'm talking their language. Me and my wife are the youngest people in that whole, uh, out of all 10 of us, me and my wife are the youngest. My wife knows those songs because I play them all the time. And so you have a room full of people that get it. And I said, in 2007, Ludacris is on top of the charts. They had no idea. I was like, now you think I just talked about a sin. I'm talking about a gentleman that proclaims sin through a music called rap and da, da, da. And they were like, oh. And I said, now here's what I'm trying to say. I said, you walk outside of our church, it's 2007, but you take one foot and step inside of our church, these relics proclaim 1957. There's a 50-year gap between the rhythm of this community inside these four walls and the world outside. Now, how do we bridge that gap? And so we took weeks to work through that. And so that was a contextualizing element that I wanted to meet the people where they were, once I identified with them, say, here's what God says. Now let's work together corporately to match where we are to where God wants us to be. That's contextualization. Now, probably in just about every church planning conference you could go to right now, there's going to be some, whether it's called contextualization, there's going to be some breakout group or session <laughs> or conversation about contextualization. to talk about exegeting the culture and all that. Are, are there ways in which this is being done poorly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a few ways. Um, in my assessment, what I've seen is, uh, let's just take urban church planning for an example. One thing that I've seen, uh, a lot of people operating, um, they use the word urban, and uh, I think we're using dated, a dated definition. Um, a lot of people think urban is black or brown only, impoverished, seedy community of the city. It's not always true. Urban is metropolitan now. 82% of our nation lives in urbanized demographics according to the u.s census bureau and with that comes government funding for section 8 housing housing vouchers all this so there's there's diversity that's all over the place now metropolitan wide suburbs are now urban because of the realities that we're seeing with gentrification pushing out of the 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 impoverished to uh outside of the 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 city limits to the suburban havens that once were people from the suburbs are moving back in they're renting their homes to move back in the city to get the new ice loft condo all that stuff you know that's where we are. And so when we talk urban, we have to talk. My homie Dahadi Lewis says it well, density and diversity, period. That's urban. 82% of our nation is in that situation. So how do I see that it's not being, um, you know, worked through properly or some poor cultural exegesis? Is I think that even, even within the sexiness of church planting and contextualization, rarely does it include the environment where I'm from. Normally it's, yeah, we're going to, God's called us to plant a church and it's going to be in this art gallery or we're going to do life in this coffee shop. And I'm like, that's fresh, but why don't you go six blocks the other way and get your hair cut at the barbershop that's from my environment? Because we need the gospel on that side of the, of the street as much as the people that you're trying to read in this small little community. And so some people are leveraging that word urban as a way to go back into the city 
they're performing all these demographic studies. They want diversity, but they're only intentional on reaching people that look like them or going to a part of the city that's safe. And, and again, I know everyone's situation is unique, but that's where I'm seeing it being poorly done. And they think that if we land at this coffee shop, we land at this record store, that all of a sudden the ethnicities are just going to come out the woodwork or they'll try to get a minority to serve in some type of a role to be eye candy for the black family that may walk in and think, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, we got a black dude. He does the announcements, you know, or he prays uh, or he does this. And that's the thing that we were in a similar situation because uh, the the first brother that I ever installed as a, as one of our deacon teams without even knowing him was was a white dude that wanted to join our church. And I did exactly what I just said everyone's guilty of. But I did it from a different perspective. I said, hey, you're white, dude. We need a we need a white leader. Will you serve as a deacon? Put him in leadership way too fast. He was overwhelmed. And he ended up, you know, uh, going off doing something else. He thought that he burnt the bridge with me, but I thought the same thing. And he connected me and was like, man, I'm sorry. And da, da, da. I said, no, I'm sorry. I should have never done that. I pigeonholed you. I did exactly what I should not have done, man. I was just so hungry for quote unquote diversity besides blacks and browns. I just threw you in a position, man, to be seen based off your skin color. I was wrong for that. So, you know, we, we learn through those mistakes. And I think the more conversations we have that are honest and transparent, that's where it was my goal to say we need to see diversity reflected in higher level decision-making leadership. And I believe that from denomination to higher demic uh, institutions to our local churches. I believe when diversity is put on display, not just racially, but generationally, we're a brochure of heaven. That's the gospel on display when you see that diversity. And so I think that um, that's that's a way that we can help correct that. And I myself will say I had the biggest trip up, mix up, hiccup. And that's how I came to this conclusion because I did it wrong. And so that's why I challenge people, man. Make sure you're, you're being intentional, but make sure it's quality, competent individuals that you're putting in leadership, not just because the, the, the color of their skin. And give them, you know, um, leverage and leadership to be seen as equals and affirm them as equals in front of the people. So, so if, I'm a, uh, if I'm a church member now, kind of shifting gears a little bit, uh, if I'm a church member who wants to do a, a good job communicating the gospel in their neighborhood and the place where I work, what do I need in my toolbox hmm. to be able to do good contextualization? Because you have some tools. I mean, uh, your experience, understanding the scriptures, mm-hmm. and uh, your thoughtfulness about worldview, some of that stuff is, is there. So you're, you're bringing that to the table no matter what setting yeah. uh, you're in. What, what do we need to put in our members' toolbox to be able to do a good job communicating the gospel where they're at? Man, there's one verse that always comes to my mind, especially when it comes to non-leaders, but just, for lack of better words, regular church members. Um, First Thessalonians two eight, Paul communicates to the Thessalonians one that he and his team were affectionately desirous of them. They shared the gospel with them, but not only the gospel of God, but their themselves because they became dear to them. So there's three things in that passage that strike me. One, every Christian, every Christian should pray, God, give me a grief for the lost. That's how it all started with me. I would drive through the neighborhood that we were going to plant in, and I said, give me a grief. And I remember crying. I, I wasn't a pastor yet. I remember crying for people that I watched on their porch getting high, smoking weed. I cried when I saw the prostitute because she didn't know where her next meal was going to come from. I didn't know her home life. I don't know if she had children she was trying to feed. I cried when I saw the retiree cutting his grass because he's worked his whole life to build this home and manage his lawn well and just have a nice, comfortable life. He he 
possibly fought in the war and, and, and had friends die in front of him. He's lived in this community for all these years. He's seen it go downhill. And then I see the gang members tagging the, the, the back of the school. And I'm sitting there like, Lord, the majority of these people have no idea that they're sitting under your wrath right now. And that broke my heart, regardless of circumstance. And I asked God to give me a grief. And with that grief came a desire to be around them. I had an affectionate desire to be around people who didn't know God. And um, every believer should possess that desire to be around the lost. Secondly, Paul said we didn't just share the gospel. We shared ourselves. That takes the commitment to a whole different level. That now says that I'm going to leverage the greatest resource I have, which is my time to invest into people. So if we're going to look at our toolbox, we need to make sure that we have a desire to be around people and that we carve out space to be around people, to share the gospel with our lips and with our lives. Um, and with that, then. Paul says we did this because you became that we, we, we you became dear to us. We loved you. And it's the agape love that God has deposited inside of every believers. The people are thirsty. They're 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 parched, man, and they're trying to drink from the fountain of entertainment, the fountain of success, the fountain of drugs, the fountain of promiscuity. They're they're looking for something to satisfy their thirst, but we the body of Christ are tributaries, man, of the agape love of God. We have the water that they thirst for. And so what we need to do to contextualize is say, man, I know people are thirsty. Let me just be a water fountain to them in my setting if it's at work. Let me be the water cooler at work. And I do that by doing acts of mercy, helping people, serving them, being thankful. I mean, it's spirit-filled living is what it is. And I define spirit-filled living I was raised to believe it was, you know, speaking, you know, in, in gibberish for 30 minutes and then walking out the house. But as I look at the scriptures, what I see spirit filled living is number one, you have the the abiding with Christ in John 15. You have the word of Christ richly indwelling in you in, in Colossians three. In addition to this, you have the confession of sins of first John one, eight through 10. In addition to this, you're allowing the spirit of God to bear his fruit through you, according to Galatians five. And so when we look at these and then you look at the realities of, you know, um, Ephesians five, where we're redeeming our time, uh, we got to know what the will of the Lord is. These are commands. These are imperatives Paul is speaking in. But then he says, be filled with the spirit, meaning we need to be under the influence of God, the Holy Spirit. We need to be so sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit that when he wants us to share the gospel, we share the gospel. When he wants us to pick up trash, we pick up trash. When he wants us to hold the door open for the family coming behind us, open the door for them. When somebody is not letting anybody in on the freeway, and I've been guilty of this, we don't speed up. We let them get in front of us. It's all that surroundings, being aware, how can I leverage every moment of my life for gospel activity? When we get our people thinking through that and they're meticulously looking at their day, they'll realize, man, I've been given every spiritual blessing at salvation. I'm a, I'm a part of a community of faith where I'm hearing the word of God. I'm being challenged by believers. My toolbox is filled. I just need to stop trying to use the screwdriver only for every situation. He's given me everything I need, and we now begin to employ that. So, That's great. Uh, one last thing. Um, for for those who might say, you know, I want to think about this further. I want to grow in my understanding of contextualization and how to be effective in it. Um, what have been some books or resources, mm. speakers, people that you look to as, man, they, these this really helped me do a good job with this? So when it comes to Christian books, I think some great authors that we can, you know, catch cues from um, on uh, on how to contextualize. You definitely Tim Keller, uh, Harvey Kahn. Is another gentleman as well, but um, um, Al Mohler really speaks uh, to the realities of uh, the, the current uh, cultural climate. Um, how, how to articulate a biblical worldview on, on on plaguing issues? 
You have Wayne Grudem, who does the same thing. Uh, Russell Moore is excellent, um, you know, in what he does. Um, there, there's a group of guys, the Gospel Coalition. Um, you know, you have a, a for African-American perspective, the front porch with uh, Tabidi, uh, um, Carl Ellis and uh, 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 Tony Carter. Those guys are specifically saying here's some unique challenges to the African-American context in the black church uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. So um, you got Juan Sanchez, John Piper. I mean, there's, we, we this is the age and the generation where we have so many resources available to us that it's really sad if we're not championing the realities of gospel centeredness and cultural conversations. We're just, we're spoiled to death and we're lazy if we're not employing it from a, from a, a non-Christian perspective or some would say a secular perspective. I think looking at uh, the current temperatures in our, in our environment by watching the news, uh, both local, regional and global, if possible, including national looking at uh, what, what, what are the cultural phenomena of our day? And, and, and with our, Spiritual maturity being to know what we can do is research and then what we know is recreation. Stay away from listening to the music if it's just for recreation and just, you know, because that can become music is so powerful. So that even can become a defense mechanism. We can numb ourselves with music from pain when God wants us to endure that suffering for his glory. And we think I'm going to alleviate it through listening to music or substances or what have you. But but know what know the difference between research and recreation. When it's research, you're looking at the rhythm of what the world is spewing out. You know, let's take for example the most recent cultural phenomenon, the 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 movie Noah. Okay, we know who wrote it. We know his um, theological perspective, as it's been reported. And people are mad. People are, oh man, how dare they? Da da da. Well, what else would you expect from someone coming from that perspective, rather than being anti the movie in itself and boycotting it and leveraging conversations of hate? Say, you know what? Let me introduce you to the biblical narrative and let's work through some of the realities that the movie highlighted that should not have been highlighted where it's speculation because that's not scripture. But at the same time, let's look at the remaining narrative of scripture. Let's look at the story of Christ. Let's look at da 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 da. And I mean, to me, I think the world threw us a softball and it's it's every believer's responsibility to knock it out the park and hit a home run for God by leveraging that to say, yeah, I know what the, the movie said. And, yeah, it was excellent. Uh, you know, um, uh, great, great. Uh, you know, the the um, the the filming of it and uh, the, the actors, the plot, like it's cool. It's fresh. The acting is good. Russell Crowe murdered it. I haven't seen the movie yet, but like from what I'm hearing um, and, 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 and leverage that. I mean, an unbeliever, when we critique a movie, if we know the movie then we're going to have a higher form of credibility with that person. And if we say, I like that shot, you know, especially for my brothers that do film, they're all over this movie. They're talking about how great it was. They're just like, man, the, the, the lighting, this and this, and oh man, they did it right. I've been trying to, I'm like, wow, that's amazing how that stimulated them from an artistic and film perspective, but they can still leverage that for the gospel. So I think we don't run from it, but at the same time, we don't accommodate to it. And when the world tries to, uh, you know, speak authoritatively on the things of God, we can't be silent, man. We can't be silent. We have to say, hey, thanks for inviting me to the conversation. And you did so indirectly by injecting uh, my God's narrative in the conversation. So I'm going to speak on his behalf and kind of work through what his word really says about this. So I think that's a, that's another reality is to be aware. Um, and the final thing, one of my favorites, probably meet my favorite singer of all time is a gentleman by the name of Sam Cooke. He was murdered 40 years ago. But Sam Cooke said something to Dick Clark on a show called American Bandstand years ago. He said, Sam, how is it that you've been on the top of the charts since you left the gospel industry and came into mainstream music? You've been on the top of the charts from 1957. It's 1963. 
all these records every year. You're putting them out. How is it you do it? He said one word, observation. And Dick Clark, what do you mean? He said observation. I listen to the to the conversations going on in my time. I write music that speaks to my time because the listeners of my time will listen. And because these are timely manner uh, matters that people from beyond this this time and space will listen as well to reflect on what's being said. So he wanted to be a, a, a quote unquote prophet for his time to speak to them through the lyrics that he wrote. And the greatest song, arguably, uh, that he wrote is A Change Gonna Come which uh, was inspired by Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. It was like his answer to Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. And that's what he was saying. Uh, this was on the cusp of the civil rights movement. He was murdered before it was, you know, this, the, 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 the fledging of it back in, in, in the late 60s uh, when Dr. King was murdered. But this was like 63, 64. He wrote that and he was like, a, a time is going to come where there's going to be a change. And I've been hard pressed, but I'm going to go on because I know a change is going to come. And so if, he, if Sam Cooke could do that in the 60s and it's resonating with Damon Horton in 2014, what can we do to be observant of our times and say, I want to speak the eternal, timeless word of God into my time on this planet. Because his word has no expiration date. So I think if we do that and we leverage and, 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 and are aware and we're observant, we speak with the authority of God's word, man. And let the Holy Spirit do the rest in the hearts of the people. Thank you. That's great. Today's podcast is made possible in part by the Rebuild Initiative. Rebuild knows that cities exist simultaneously as a picture of both the most impressive and the most depressing aspects of humanity. Because of this, Rebuild is working to start a network of church plants that are reproducing churches in areas that are both dense and diverse. You can learn more about the Rebuild Initiative by visiting their website, rebuildnetwork.org. A special thanks to D.A. Horton and our guest host, Colby Garman, for sharing their thoughts with us and as always to Xavier Chapman who produced and edited today's show most of all I thank you for listening all the way to the very end you can feel free to learn more about our podcast by visiting the website clintclifton.org there you'll find additional posts about church planting and notes and links from today's show